going to your butt. <laughs> oh, hello. Welcome to episode 110 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. As always, I'm joined by Mary, a woman who knows more about giving the cold shoulder than about discussing Cold Harbor. I am merely a trampled headlog named Darren. Hello, Mary. <laughs> trampled what? Never mind. Never mind. What's going on? How are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, God. I'm telling you. I'm doing, you know, I was doing, doing good. It's doing fantastic. Fantastic. You're obviously right on your game. As always, Mary, you're ready to go. It's your Friday night, and you're ready to roar and ready to go. First time recording on a Friday night, too. That's very exciting. It's very exciting. Yep. So um, we haven't done this in a couple of weeks. So I know it's been, we took a few right? weeks off just because we've been busy and stuff, but we are back um, and not to steal your thunder. So I will let you get back to your hosting duties. Oh, okay. I'm happy to do that. I mentioned the thunder. I think the thunder about to get here a little bit. So I will ask you, because I'm a gracious host, Mary, what are you drinking on this fine evening, this oh. Friday evening extravaganza? I am drinking resin um it's a double ipa by six point brewing out of um brooklyn new york it's very good okay and what are you drinking oh and i'm drinking out of my unconditionals grant mug and what are you drinking oh, rusty rusty yeah i know it's I'm been a few weeks of, I'm very rusty i know it's a six point uh, stupor ipa apparently it's the best you can do at the beer store so that's what i'm drinking <laughs> and i am drinking likewise out of my u.s grant mug because Although this isn't going to be a, a good day for old uh, Ulysses here. This is going to be um, one that he's talked about quite a bit. So we can kind of just kind of get into this, Mary. I think, you know, you probably forgot by now. But, you know, but a few weeks ago, we discussed the Battle of Spotsylvania. Really? And, that, yeah, that brutal battle that was uh, the early part of Ulysses S. Grant's Orleans campaign yeah. in the spring of 1864. Now, we're not going to go back and reinvent the wheel here. No. Turn back time, if you know. I think it's important to mention, though, that like this is a simultaneous. There's simultaneous offensives that Grant has launched at the Confederacy. The Overland campaign is just one of them. Sherman's Atlanta campaign is the other that's happening. And if you'll remember, a few weeks ago, we recorded an episode about Pickett's Mill as well. And there's stuff happening down mm -hmm. in like, you know, kind of in the Gulf area yeah, as yeah. well with i think it's nathaniel banks and all that so there's there's different things happening to try and bring an end to the civil war um but yeah. the the overland campaign is what grant is currently involved in and the army of the potomac which the army of the potomac is led by uh general meade yeah so it's if you know it follows the you know it's about something when it's a battle of wilderness uh at the old chancellorsville battlefield um 1863 um and then Spotsylvania comes along, but it really signified that sea change in that Union Army's philosophy that we talked about a couple episodes ago about how the philosophy changed a little bit. And it's going to really change with this battle we're going to talk about now. Mm -hmm. And again, unlike previous generals, you know, Grant, you know, he wouldn't fall back to the lick his wounds, um, you know, after he um, after he won or lost like previous uh, unit generals are um, before, you know, basically before starting Confederate General Robert E. Lee's army in Northern Virginia. Um, he was like the Terminator. He kept coming. And this is the mm -hmm. thing that Lee realized, too, is that unlike these previous generals, Grant's going to keep coming. He's not going to fall back and, yep. and just give him time. And it, looking at the numbers, Grant knew that he had almost a two-to-one man advantage at the beginning of this Overland campaign. And instead of trying to sack Richmond like his predecessors, like McClellan, we, yep. you know, we talked about the Peninsula campaign. Um, he's gonna he's gonna use that man advantage not to attack the capital, 
but he's going to try to use it to target and destroy Lee's army. Well, that's what he told to me to do, right? Way. That's what he told me to do was wherever well, right, Lee goes that, that there, the, you will also go. And that was the big game change, really, um, going back to early May of 1864. And Lee didn't realize it. He didn't realize the target was on his forehead instead yeah. of the, Richmond. And that, that, that's a big part of it. So without rehashing Spotsylvania all over again, you know, Grant's philosophy is going to prove to be extremely costly. Now, when you factor in the Battle of the Wilderness, the battle after Spotsylvania, Grant suffered close to 40,000 casualties at this point. That's a, he started 125,000 men. He's already, yeah. he's already lost 40. And he can, get resor- he can get reinforcements much easier than what Lee can now. And, you know, what Grant said about this is he said, I determined first to use the greatest number of troops practicable against the armed force to, of the enemy to hammer continuously against the armed force of the enemy and his resources until by mere attrition, if no other way, there should be nothing left of him. And that's what he's doing. And that's that's not really what Sherman is doing. He's Sherman's sort of doing that in his Atlanta campaign, but not really. The attrition thing for Sherman really comes about with the um, with the march to the sea. So this is kind of Grant's overall, like what he overall, I guess, philosophy is like, we're going to do this by attrition. But this is essentially what he's doing in the Overland campaign as well is just keep throwing them, keep throwing the troops. And he I think Grant full well knows that what the cost is going to be. And it's the lives of these men to bring an end to the Civil War. Well, I mean, he, he there's stories that Grant would go into his tent and openly weep when he got the, the crash team numbers of some yeah. of these battles. Now, Lee, just part of the wilderness, he had about 65,000 men. And and after Spotsylvania, he lost about 20,000. So this Grant, so the war of attrition you mentioned for Grant is actually working at this point. Mm-hmm. But that butcher's bill is getting larger and larger and larger. So by May 26, this is just after the, uh, battle, uh, the battle of North Anna, uh, it's just two weeks after the beginning of the Overland campaign. Grant is losing an astonishing 2,000 men per day at this point. That's how many guys he's losing. And by that point, Lee realized he had to know that he's dealing with a different animal in this U.S. Grant. Oh, yeah. And he knows he's going to be relentless and he's going to be hunted down by Grant. And this is this is a different thing now. And Grant's philosophy mentioned that. Uh, it's, it's also going to require Lee to change his philosophy. You know, he saw his numbers diminishing, that, that is, of Robert E. Lee, unlike his rival to the north that you mentioned a bit ago. Lee really had no opportunity to replace these men. No, and sometimes you know, he, it's not. The men are not necessarily being, you know, a casualty of battle or of disease. They're also deserting at this time. You know, desertions in Army of Northern Virginia are happening. I mean, I'm, they're obviously happening in the Union, too. But at this time, Army of Northern Virginia, they're definitely happening. And, and Lee cannot afford to lose men at this point because he does not they don't have the way to reinforce that that the union army does right and here and here's why that's important too is because lee no longer had the ability to control that initiative he no longer had the ability to counterattack like he did at the battle of chancellorsville mm-hmm. when he attacked when he had lower numbers and he was able to counterattack to achieve success probably because of howard realistically but but that's the Ooh. way it was he he doesn't so he, he can't wait and just split his army up anymore and, and counterattack. So he doesn't have the ability to do that. And, that. and that's the big change for Lee's philosophy. You know, Grant though, you know, was taking was taking a beating and soon realized that he is gonna need more men. He's yeah. losing guys two thousand per day. He's gonna win this a war of attrition, 
to do it, but he's, I mean, he's, he's losing more. It's a very high cost to win a war of attrition. He is. And the one thing Grant didn't have though was time. Mm -hmm. He didn't have the, he didn't have the luxury of finding recruits, training them, putting them through all the drills to get them ready and go fight. So he decided what he's going to do is he's going to go to the bullpen. He's going to the army of, 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 um, of the Potomac, and what he's going to ultimately end up doing is he's going to look at some of these heavy artillery infantry groups that are guarding the forts around Baltimore and around Washington. Mm-hmm. And again, this is risky because Abraham Lincoln, Mary, the guy with the hat we yeah. talk about from time to time, he desperately, if you remember, you probably forgot that too, wanted to protect the capital. It was yeah. a big deal for him. And so he's going to allow Grant to pull a handful of regiments that were previously being used to man and guard these forts. Now, these men were heavy artillery soldiers. They weren't new. They'd been in the Army a couple of years. But their jobs did not require, for the most part, that they attacked. Their jobs, for the most part, were to sit in forts with these big guns, do parades, Mm -hmm. and for the most part, sit around. I don't want to say sit around, but they they just guarded, and not a lot was going on. But they need Um, them. That's the thing. It's like the Confederates haven't threatened washington yet i mean you flash forward to july of 64 and they're going to but like you know right now like it's i think grant is kind of weighing the risks of what he needs to do and it is risky it is risky to pull men from the forts but you have to look at okay what's more like if i don't then i'm not gonna have the map you gotta do what you gotta do i mean you, you have no alternative so the heavy artillery regiments that Grant is going to pull to join the fight in Virginia is going to be the 2nd New York, the mm-hmm. 7th New York, the 1st Massachusetts, and the 2nd Connecticut Heavy Artillery. Now, these men, like we said, they're not new, and they, but they're basically like derided and teased by the other infantrymen. They're yeah. called paper-collar soldiers. They're called bandbox soldiers They who sat behind fat walls and did parades and sat around. That's the reputation they have. We talked a lot about these soldiers, you know, regaining reputation. George Lamb Willard at Gettysburg, we talked a lot about. You know, A.P. Hill coming out of Harpers Ferry for Antietam. There's a lot of cases throughout this. Yeah. And this is another one. These men and their leaders need to prove to the rest of the soldiers that they are legit soldiers. Mm-hmm. But for Grant, like I said, this is risky. He's taking untested troops and putting them in a crucial spot to replace 40,000 lost battle-tested veterans in Virginia in the waning days of this war when Lee was was a caged animal. So it it was a risky venture for Grant. Now, one of these regiments I mentioned, uh, some of these I mentioned, two of them are really going to stand out in this battle we're Mm going to talk about. And that's going to be – we'll we'll talk about The first one we're going to talk about is the 2nd Connecticut, right? Yeah. To get into this. And real quick, tell them about their story. The Second Connecticut was formed in 1862, and they spent the war guarding forts in Washington. Their commander was a colonel named Elijah Strong Kellogg, and he's from Glastonbury, Connecticut. Um, I think the traffic on I-95 probably made him a hardened and oh, angry man. God, so he's probably traffic. the perfect guy for the job. Dude, going like that. It's worse than Maryland traffic. <laughs> now, the thing about Kellogg, before the war, you know, he was a sailor mm-hmm. in the British merchant fleet. And he tried his luck hunting for gold in the California gold rush in 1849 when my old Uncle Blingy was out there with yep, the Mary. Uncle Blingy right? discovered the gold. You know, he was a big, red-faced, angry guy who mm-hmm. bullied his men, but he earned their respect because how hard he drilled them. 
the movie Glory we talked about, yeah. the guy who plays Sergeant Major, um, he actually looks a lot like Kellogg yes. if you look at his face. Yeah. It can't can't Megs. Physically they look a lot alike and they drilled very, you know, very similarly. I wonder if he was kind of based off of him. You know, because oh, that, that character was fictional, was he not? He was sure it was fictional, but uh, he, Kellogg wasn't an Irish like like the movie. But he, no. he, if you look him up, he looks he lost looks mm-hmm. like he's in the movie. The other regiment I wanted to talk about was the Eighth New York Heavy Artillery, which is based in Niagara uh, area of New York. They had guys from Batavia. We were there not too long yep. ago. Uh, Lockport, and then they are also formed in 1862. Now these men are going to join. This Eighth New York is actually going to join Grant right before the Battle of Spotsylvania. So they're there a little bit sooner than the Second yep. Connecticut. And these guys, for the most part, guarded forts around Baltimore, Maryland. You know, for the most part. Their commander was a guy named Colonel Peter Porter. Mm-hmm. And he was a Harvard man, Mary, from Harvard University up the street in Cambridge. Probably couldn't get into BC. He looks like a Harvard man. I'm just looking at his picture right now. <laughs> Certainly was. But he was also a New York State senator. And so that's who he was. The men of the 8th New York Heavy Artillery absolutely adored Colonel Porter. They, were, they weren't happy guarding forts, and they knew Porter didn't like this paper-collar soldier reputation mm-hmm. they had. He wanted to get them out into fight. The Med wanted to fight, and they loved him for it. And he was really pushing the envelope. Now, as I mentioned, Lee didn't have a bullpen to call on when he lost a soldier. He couldn't just, just go to the soldier store and go pick up new guys. Yeah, soldier so store. He, he, so and he, Lee knew – as well as anyone, the clock was running out on him because he was—he knew at this point likely what Grant was doing, and he knew that the, it was finite. The time it was it was yeah. running low, and the situation was dire. He had a real tough situation in Spotsylvania, uh, and now he lost a lot of guys, and now he's he's losing more with no ability to replace them. Grant also knew this. He and he knew that mighty Army of Northern Virginia <clears throat> was vulnerable, mm-hmm. or as how he thought they were anyway. Because this war of attrition was important to him. Um, besides those men, Lee, Lee was also losing a lot of his top officers. Don't just forget the soldiers. Obviously, Stonewall Jackson's gone. Yeah. Uh, James Longstreet got injured at the wilderness, so he's going to be out a little while. Mm-hmm. Just two weeks before, on May 12th, he lost Jeb Stewart at Yellow Tavern. Yeah. And, and throw in the fact that A.P. Hill is perma-sick at this point. He's and isn't, always sick. isn't Ewell taken out, too? At some point, and Jubal well, early takes over they're, command. Too. They're they're losing they're losing yeah. guys left and right in the soldier. But AP Hill, he he's also lost his fastball a little bit too. Oh, he yeah. doesn't have that fire anymore. I mean, he's been sick for a while, and you know, it, it, all this is going to put Lee in a really really bad spot, and it's going to put him in the spot that he doesn't like, and that is forcing him to react yeah. to what Grant does. He was a big seize the initiative guy, control you know, control the situation. Now he knew he had to react and he knew he had to play defense mm-hmm. and he was hoping he, to force Grant into a quagmire giggity with all the hope that that would tire out the North and he, maybe they would sustain so many losses. The Copperheads would politically, they would just call an end to this, yeah. that the, the blood was going to be so bad. They said, this is ridiculous. Enough is enough. And, that was kind of his. That was kind of Lee's game plan. Yeah, it really was, and it's not a good game plan to have. He's lucky though that his men, the soldiers, still had piss and vinegar in their veins. They had fire yeah. in their bellies. To, to, they they wanted to keep fighting. The, there was no lack of fighting spirit in the men of the Army of Northern Virginia. 
No, there wasn't. There was, and, you know, same with Army of the Potomac. I mean, but both sides are getting worn down. Like, Spotsylvania was a very horrific battle for both sides, you know, and here they are having to kind of, like, do it again, you know, or go into it. It's like, they're just going to keep at them, you know, and how much Grant and Meade and all, you know, the Corps commanders are telling them what's going on. Like, they might be kind of in the dark about some of it too, right? Like, they might be like, what are we doing now? Well, they certainly are. We're not going to talk a lot about the Battle of North Anna, which we, we'll maybe yeah. another day. But just real quickly, it was a battle that Lee. It was heading into Cold Harbor. It was it was a battle that Lee had a chance to set a trap on Grant, and it was yeah. kind of his last real type of offensive communication. Got all screwed up, and no one did what Shocker. they were supposed to do, and, and it fell apart. Lee was also sick at this time. He had a little scarbutic situation. So yes, I was, I was reading about that in one of the books I read point. for this. It was he was like. He, literally in bed and he's having to figure out what's going on you know well, he couldn't ride traveler he was riding in a carriage yeah he just couldn't he just couldn't do it so he physically he's down he's he's ill as well and grant you know grant strategy for the most part it all along was to was to get lee in the open try to get him to block richmond to yep. pull him out it and, and then go ahead and attack him but again, Lee still thinks he's trying to take Richmond, and it's not. That's, that's like I said, the target is right on Lee's forehead. Yeah. And you know, to Lee's credit, for the most part, most of the fights on Grant's on this Wolverine campaign were kind of stalemates. I mean, yeah, it's a really a two to one man advantage all along. But Lee is going to pick the wilderness, you know, as a fighting ground. He's going to beat him at Spotsylvania, yeah. so he's able to kind of keep him at bay. He's even with the greater numbers, he's able to fight Lee pretty much mono a mono to a stale st- yeah. standstill. Well, they have stuff going against them though too. Like there's like poor communication that's constantly happening. There's the weather, which we saw with Spotsylvania, which it turns out, you know, the weather as crappy as it was, like turns out to be an advantage for the Confederates because it completely messes the Union up in what they're trying to do, right? Um, so there's lots of stuff going on too. And you see a parallel to that, you see it happening in the Atlanta campaign as well. Like communication and weather are two things that are really factoring in to what's happening in the Civil War at this time. Yeah, and weather's going to play. We're going to play it. Weather's going to talk about this yeah. in a little bit. So May 28, 1864, Mary, U.S. Grant is going to be, is going to cross a river called the, um, called the Pamunkey River. Great yeah. name for a river, okay? Huh. And and this is, he's basically closing in on the James River, mm-hmm. which is, which is, which is near Richmond. And the rebel capital is that vital railroad hub. It's obviously the capital of the Confederacy. It's for Lee, it's the game. It's the lifeblood of everything. Now, Grant, for the most part, is tightening the vice and getting closer and closer to Richmond. Lee, again, running out of time. He doesn't have it. He's running out of time. And he also has losing room to maneuver. So as he's getting closer and closer to Richmond, he's limited to what he can do as far as logistically go, Mm -hmm. moving, things like that. Lee's going to write, He's going to write, we must destroy this army before it gets to the James. If it gets there, it'll become a siege, and then it'll be a matter of time. Yeah. So, the, the, like I said, the vice, the vice is closing. Grant on this day is less than 10 miles from Richmond, and Lee knew he had no choice but to fight yeah. Grant now and beat him. This was literally now or never for Lee, because if, if Grant beats him here— He's going to, in Lee's mind, he's going to go right through. He's going to take Richmond, and that's going to be the end of the game. Grant is rubbing his hands together because he's thinking this is it. This is right now, this end game. So 
To stop Grant, Lee is going to set up a five-mile defense line running northwest to northeast of Richmond, which is going to guard the roads that are going into the rebel capital. Grant knew that if he could break this line, he'd have a clear path to Richmond, and he, so he knew that Lee knew this. So when he knew Lee had to fight here. Yeah. So by going at, going at these roads, he knew this was his chance again to bring Lee out and get him. Mm-hmm. Richmond, not who cares. It's Lee. But he wanted, he knew that by where he was going, Lee had to fight him here. And so it was a perfect situation. Uh, and so with Lee out in the open, um, he he had him. So Grant was, was as confident as Apollo Creed fighting Drago at this point. <laughs> he, 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 he just was. He's going to wire Washington. He's going to write, Lee's army is really whipped. Prisoners we take show it. I may be mistaken, but I feel our success over Lee's army is already assured. That's what he wrote. Mm-hmm. And history will prove soon later that Grant had chosen poorly, poorly. with this situation. He, he did. Poorly. So, so let's kind of go into this a little bit. May 30th, 1864, the Army of the Potomac, still under George Meade. You mentioned yeah. that a little while ago. Good way to put, bring that up, Mary. But it's still under the overall command of Grant. Mm-hmm. They're marching along the Virginia countryside in the woods. And to your point with the weather, it is extremely hot. Uh, it is oppressive as Virginia tends to be yeah. in late May. It and just it's very cold. like it had been really dry leading up to that. But as we saw in Spotsylvania, like the rain and when it rains, it rains for days at a time. But it's very hot, like humid, just gross weather. Yeah, if you bet everyone's been in Virginia in, in late spring, early summer, it's just hot, oppressive. It was it was in the high 90s mm-hmm. around this time, which is hot. It was dusty. And these men had to march along these dusty, hot roads, wearing the wool, carrying all their gear. And they've been fighting now for weeks almost straight. So you can yep. see their, the tires on their mental, you know, yeah, yep. they're wearing tires down. Yeah, they're wearing well. down. Now, many of these men recognize the landscape because they fought on the same ground during the Seven Days Battles a couple of years before. Yep. And so their objective, for the most part, was to seize the roads leading into Richmond. And, and there was just like Spotsylvania, there was a little crossroads where all the roads converged. They mm-hmm. wanted to get that crossroads. The crossroads was near a small tavern called Cold Harbor. And despite the name, it was not cold, nor was it a harbor. It got that name because it was a safe harbor for travelers looking yeah. to, for a place to stay. And it was called Cold because they didn't serve hot food or they didn't serve food at all. So that's how you got that's how you get the name Cold Harbor. So the calendar is going to flip to June, June 1st of 1864, Mary. The Union forces will control this, cro- this cold harbor crossroads under the cavalry force of guess who? Phil Sheridan. Phil Sheridan. Oh, oh, yep. oh Phil's back from his adventure with Yellow Tavern. He's back. So mm-hmm. uh, Sheridan is going, to, is going to basically be basking in the glow of killing Jeb Stewart a few weeks prior, despite the fact that he robbed the federals of calvary yeah and maybe it wasn't as big of a deal as 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 what they thought and i mean he's got three different guys with him he's got uh general alfred t a torbert general dmg greg or run dmg as you call him and then general james h wilson those are the three guys that sheridan has with him um at this time and he um he's at the crossroads and you know Meade has basically told him you need to to hold them at a Grant tells him you need to hold them secure it 
at all hazards. And this is the thing, like, I don't think Sheridan is taking orders from Mead anymore at this point. Like, it's always no, like... That ship has sailed, I think. That ship sailed a long time ago. They did not get along at all. And, I mean, quite frankly, mm-hmm. I don't blame them. Blame Mead because I am... I cannot stand Phil Sheridan. But, um, you know, so you see these orders coming down. They're always from Grant. So Sheridan's kind of like this, like, is he independent from the Army of the Potomac and taking order for some grant? Who knows? It's just kind of a weird situation. Well, regardless, he, he's there. He's holding it. Lee is actually going to try to attack him mm-hmm. because he's going to realize it's cavalry. And he actually is going to have some success on Sheridan. But what's going to happen is the Union's going to get infantry support. And this is going to be yeah. the Sixth Corps that's going to come in and they're going to push the rebels back. This infantry be under Horatio, right? We mentioned the Sixth Corps. These are hardened veterans. These are guys who've been fighting. They fought. They've been fighting for a while. These are Sedgwick's guys, because remember, Sedgwick hasn't even been gone for that long yet. And Horatio no, Wright was the one that took over for him. And Wright was right in the fire, in a, you know, frying pan of the fire in Spotsylvania, yep. you know, for the most part. So among these troops in the Sixth Corps, these hardened vets, is going to be that paper collar, heavy artillery regiment under Elijah Kellogg, that's Second mm-hmm. Connecticut. And uh, Kellogg, again, wanted to fight. He drove his men very hard to get to the battlefield. And like I mentioned, these guys have never seen combat before. And so their baptism under fire is going to be a prove to be a bad one, right? So they're going to be up there with the Sixth Corps on the field now. Mm-hmm. George Meade is going to draw up a battle plan to attack Lee. Now, Lee, remember, is in that five-mile defensive line he's got a good position but he's got no reserves he's got one line and that's all he's got that's all she wrote they are entrenched and they are building extensive breastworks along that line so by 4 30 p.m on the afternoon of of the first of june two years to the day by the way that robert lee took command yeah not far away after the battle close to the anniversary of howard losing his arm Right, exactly. Meade is going to order the first assault on these rebel lines, which will begin what will be known as the Battle of Cold Harbor. Mm-hmm. Now, Chosen is one of the – and this is the thing that's amazing. You know who they chose one of the regiments to lead the attack? Was the 2nd Connecticut Heavy Artillery, that green mm-hmm. who, group have never seen the elephant under Kellogg. He's going to be one of the first ones to go in. These untested troops, they're going to be placed in the 2nd Brigade under Emory Upton who's in David Russell's 1st Division of the 6th Corps. He's got a good, good brigade commander. Yep. Some of the soldiers commented how bright and crisp the blue uniforms were compared to the faded ones that the yeah. vets had. Because these guys are right out of the wrapper. That's how new they yeah, were. Yeah, that would be... Then, I mean, God, I would not want to be in their position. So Colonel Kellogg, upon getting the game plan, he's going to find out his men are going to be right at the vanguard, right at the point in the attacks. He meticulously is going to go over his plan with his staff, and he impressed on them very much that what he wanted is he wanted to to know his men, they weren't these fake soldiers they've been hearing about. They wanted to prove themselves, that they weren't the people who are going to sit on their asses around forts all the time. He wanted to know, he wanted to get them out, he wanted to show the rest of the army that Mm -hmm. his men were equals to them. It was a big deal to Kellogg. So Captain Theodore Vale, he's going to be on, on Kellogg's staff. He's going to write down what Kellogg said to his men right before they went in. And he's going to write. Now, men, go in steady. Keep cool. Keep still until I order you to charge. Then go in with a yell. Not a man will fire a shot until we are within the enemy's breastworks. I shall be with you. Mm-hmm. 
So what's he saying? Well, going in and don't shoot until you get there. Yep. So, okay. So joining Kellogg's second Connecticut is going to be, is going to be many battle tested regiments that we talked about the fifth, uh, main 121st New York. Yep. They fought at Gettysburg, the 95th Pennsylvania Zouaves. They're from Philly. They fought, uh, they fought Wheat's battalion there in those seven day battles nearby. So they are with real legit battle tested, tested guys. This is going to be Kellogg's first battle. Which is remarkable, uh, which is kind of like being thrown in the ocean to be taught how to swim. Yeah. That's the equivalent of what this is going to be against, like I said, those entrenched veterans of Robert E. Lee less than 10 miles from the Capitol when they're their most desperate. Yeah. So the time is going to come and Kellogg is going to give his men some last minute orders, last minute things. He puts his hat on his sword. Like Armistead gets. Yeah, yeah, right? it's, it's like Armistead. Had the sword. He's going to hold it over his head, and he's going to move charged men forward, and they're going to leave those breastworks, and they're going to move towards that rebel line with twelve thousand other men from the Sixth Corps. They're all going in. Now, when they approach the rebel line, men from Richard Anderson's corps, the Confederates, right, the ones who took over for Longstreet. Yeah. They are going to be just south. They're going to be lined up. This is all taking place just south of the old Gaines Mill battlefields, which we were not too long ago. It's kind of yep. the same area, right? So in their front is going to be the brigade of Thomas Lanier Klingman. He's a North Carolina guy from Robert Hoke's division. Yep. They're going to have the 8th, the 31st, the 51st, and 61st North Carolina. And again, they're going to be entrenched behind earthworks, and they're going to be sitting there waiting for these Union guys to come. And what's going to happen is once they get within range, the Carolinians are going to open fire. And guess what's going to happen in the second Connecticut? They get decimated. They're going to get cut to ribbons. They're yeah. going to get, be shredded. Kellogg is going to try to rally his men, and he knew it was a waste of time. They were beaten badly in a very short amount of time. We're talking minutes, right? Yeah. And despite that, what's amazing about this is despite that, they got within 10 yards of the rebel breast. Yeah, they got close. That's how, and it got to a point, there's a really cool story about this. I mentioned I mentioned Klingman, right? The rebel commander Klingman, he's going to write later that he remembers seeing Kellogg trying to rally his men just a few yards away. So basically they're right – so – Claimants behind the rebel breastworks. Kellogg is right in front of the breastworks, leading his men. Kellogg is going to um, be standing there, waving his sword, trying to rally his men. And Klingman's going to write about this. He's going to write, a tall and uncommonly fine-looking officer in the <laughs> front rank of the enemy's column was looking at me directly in the face and took off his cap and cheered his men with words I could not hear. So when Clint, so what happens when Klingman's eyes and Kellogg's eyes, they literally mesh at that very moment. Klingon says he saw two bullets blow his head off while he's looking right at him. Oh my God. And then, and then he went down. Captain Theodore Vale, the guy I quoted a little while ago, who's on Kellogg's staff, he wrote at this moment, the men staggered in every direction, some falling on the very top of the rebel parapet. So what are they saying? They're right on the breast. Yeah, they're, they're right, right there. Right there. But what happens a lot is when you lose your commander, things change, right? Yeah. The men of the Second Connecticut, seeing that Kellogg has now fallen, they begin to fall and run back towards the Union breastworks. It turns into the old Howard 10K. <laughs> they turn, they, they're going to take off, right? And as they're running back, they're going to run by their brigade commander. 
I mentioned who that was before. Remember who it was? That was... It was Emery Upton. Upton. Yeah, I was just going to say so Upton Emory, was like... So Upton is going to see these Connecticut men running, and he's going he's gonna to start... He's going to try to rally them. There's one point where Upton himself stops them, and he basically says, you know what? Stand here. Give me a musket. So he starts getting muskets loaded, and he starts shooting at the Rebs, and then there's passing him muskets, and he's shooting, grabbing another one. Yeah. And that's what Upton is doing. And he's firing, and Upton's yelling at his men, men of Connecticut, stand by me. We must hold this line. Yeah. So he takes that personal leadership at this situation. Upton does. All the Connecticut guys, Connecticut guys stop running, and they, they basically, you know what they do? They hold the line. Yeah. So the Rebs aren't able to, to get past them. So – um, the more experienced Sixth Corps, up and down the line, they took a, they took a similar beating under brigades mm-hmm. b- brigades by guys like Albert Col- uh, Albert Colquitt, yeah. uh, Johnson Haygood, uh, James Martin. So this this assault was repeating itself up and down the line with similar results. William Penrose, New, New Jersey Brigade, Henry Eustace's men, uh, Nelson Cross's Pennsylvania, New York men. They're hitting this wall and getting driven back just as fast. And it's because of those defenses, those breastworks the Confederates yeah. have. So as darkness falls, the Rebs are gonna are gonna have to fall back to their line. So they're not able to pursue. Again, they don't have any more reserves. They can't counterattack. They have to fall back to their lines. And in this assault, that second Connecticut, they lose 386 men in just within minutes. Yeah. And they said those crisp new blue uniforms were riddled with holes and covered with blood. That's what yeah. they said about them. Yeah. Uh, and Upton described the battle as a sheet of flame, sudden as lightning, red as blood, and so near that it seemed to singe the men's faces. So it was very, again, the, the fighting here, you know, whether you're looking at Spotsylvania or you're looking at Cold Harbor, it's very horrific. It's, you know, and at some points during this battle, I'm sure we'll talk about this, they do divulge again into hand-to-hand combat, combat, right? But like, you know, this first day oh. is... Oh like just it, it's again very very horrific fighting and you know it's been the lead up to it as well like it's been marred by poor communication you know people are late getting to where they need to be in the battle you know the beginning is actually delayed because of that you know mm. well right so that that that's going to be coming so so while this is going on back at the headquarters u.s grants and that famous picture with matthew brady was leaning up against the tree yep that's the headquarters where he is, and this is all going on. So yeah. that's where that picture gets taken. And actually, it's on June twelfth. The picture gets taken. But U.S. Grant is uh, has heard what happened. He heard they got repulsed pretty quickly, but he's still confident. He's like, yeah. okay, well, I mean, he, he, he's been to Shiloh. He's been. I mean, he's 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 not the type of guy who's going to quit on day no, one. No, he's seen a lot but, of stuff. He's been through a lot, and he's learned. He's first, learned as he goes too. In this first assault, he's lost twenty four hundred men. And the Rebs have only lost a thousand. So mm-hmm. again, those numbers aren't working out too well. But Grant, for whatever reason, he felt that another frontal attack on these rebel breastworks would break the line. And the reason for this confidence is going to be that anticipated arrival of the second corps of Winfield Scott Hancock. Yep. Old Winnie Boy's coming again. He's coming again. And so he he knows he's got these guys coming, these battle-tested second corps guys under Hancock was as tough as iron, right? During the night of June first, this is this is after that first assault. Uh, the, the shots are going to slow down. They're going to they're going to stop for the most part. Hancock, he's on the far Union right. Mm-hmm. Well, not the far, not the very end, but he's he's on the yep. right. So just like Spotsylvania, he him and his men 
I've got to make another march behind the entire arm at yeah. night behind the lines because he's going to get to the left um, of Horatio Wright. So he's going to have to do another fun run through the woods. But the weather is an issue at this time. It's not going to be rain. It's going to be heat. And yeah. this is going to be a big deal that even at nighttime, the heat is so bad. The humidity is so bad that um, that it, it, they just it just the men are falling. I mean, so basically, just you're going that they're talking about the fact that the soldiers, they just couldn't really walk yeah. that, that far. There was stories where the, the horses who were carrying the artillery and the wagons were dying in the middle of the road. Yeah. They had to move them all. It was late at night, so the DQs were closed. <laughs> so there's nothing they could do. No about blizzards. That. No, they, no, no chance with that. But he, he's going to have to walk all the way around that Union line again and set up with his divisions again of John Gibbon, Francis Barlow. In David Bell Burney, who's yeah. going to kind of be in reserve, but they're going to set up down there. So they do finally get there. The Sixth Corps is going to um, is going to be set up with the division of David Russell with James Ricketts and Thomas Neal to the left of Bill of Baldy Smith's 18th Corps, yeah. who's going to be attacking Richard Anderson's Corps just to the east of the old Gaines Mill battlefield again, like they had earlier that day. So it's all going to kind of take place just south of the old battlefield. Mm-hmm. Now, Hancock was expected to make this march all night to be ready for an attack the next morning at dawn. Not going to happen. And the weather was so hot, uh, it just wasn't possible. And so they, they also the men, got lost, too, when they were going. They got, yeah, they, they, they get lost. It was hot. It was miserable. The men are bitching. They're complaining. Like I said, the horses are dying. Their pets' heads are falling <laughs> off. The whole deal, right? So they're finally going to get there. Um and it must have felt like deja vu from Spotsylvania for some of these guys. Oh, that's exactly I mean, what I was thinking. It's like, here we go again. Like, what are we going into? So by the time they get there, it's late or it's early on the 2nd of June. And they're they're just exhausted. So Grant says, you know what? We're going to take a time out. We're going to delay this till the next day. Mm-hmm. So instead of fighting on dawn on June 2nd, it's going to be dawn on June 3rd. Yeah. Now, here's the thing, though, Mary. This plays right into Lee's hands. Exactly. Because what does Lee do now? Lee yeah. now has thir- he's had end, end up with thirty six hours to strengthen those breastworks. Now those breastworks, what he, he took them, what they basically did was they dug four feet in the ground yep. to make trenches, and then they put headlocks on top with that little spot that you can put your rifle through so you can shoot. Most of the injuries that took place in the Confederates were on the neck and the head because that's the only spot they could be seen, yeah. the ones that they did get injured. But they turned those those earthworks into Gibraltar. Yeah. I mean, it was... It, it's pretty know, impressive and, what they do, and, like, Lee just takes advantage of that. Like, he figures out um, that the Second Corps and the Union Army is on the move, and he, he's going to have his troops construct very impressive and intricate series of entrenchments and this reinforces his position in an area that is heavily wooded it's very uneven terrain so it's bad enough to fight on anyway but what you're seeing here is this has been a pattern in the the overland campaign and it is the entrenchments the digging in and that's what they've basically been doing the armies both sides would get to a place and they would start digging in and it's a pattern not just in the eastern theater but it's in the western theater as well but the way it evolves in the Eastern theater is into this trench warfare as well, which is, this right. is the beginnings it, of it. 
It, it is. I mean, that, that old Jomini style with Dennis Mahan taught a lot of these guys about the Napoleonic style. They, they realized that that wasn't mm-hmm. going to work. But but those breastworks, they, they were so good. If you go back to Gold Harbor today, you can still see how tall they were. Yeah. These breastworks, they were real and they were spectacular. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just how good they were. But you can see how strong – if you go there, you can still see it today. A lot of Cold Harbor Battlefield is gone, unfortunately, but you can still see the entrenchments. Yeah, there's a little bit of it. It's worth it's worth visiting. And the the other thing that Lee does, too, is that um, he ends up moving Breckenridge as well, because he's like, well, Hancock's moving. You may as well move, too. So this means that, you know, when Hancock gets to where he needs to be, he's going to be facing Breckenridge again. Um, which is kind of funny. And when Breckenridge moves, he manages to drive a small Union force off this place called Turkey Hill, which dominates um, a southern part of the battlefield. Yeah, you're, you're going to have, we'll talk about the lines. You're going to have, you know, Cabus Wilcox is going to be down in the south. You know, Breckenridge, it'll, move, it'll continue north to get to Kershaw. And, and it's just going to go right up the line. Now, the night of June 2nd, it did rain. And yep. it did break the heat down a little bit. And the troops slept in the pouring rain that night. And and they 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 if you read a lot of the stories and the diaries, they talk about that anticipation, right? They knew the next day was gonna be pure hell. They mm-hmm. both sides knew it. But the rain fell. Many of the Union men spent sleepless nights just sewing. They talk about sewing their names into their uniforms yeah, so after they were killed. Because they, they just they, they had this kind of it was probably like you said, a sense of deja vu and the one reason for this too is that the union troops don't know the details of their objectives on the eve of the battle at all and this is because Meade and grant have not been communicating um you know they've kind of said well we'll let the corps commanders figure out how they want to attack kind of thing and it's really i mean for for the infantry like for the soldiers that's got to be a terrible feeling. It's like you don't know what you're doing, and you know they've already been th- no. they've already been through something like this before at Spotsylvania. So just, just imagine they're sitting there sewing their names in. They talk about how they were writing letters home goodbye to their family. They were writing things like, you know, I when I died, I was thinking of you facing the enemy. They were writing yeah. letters like like it had already happened. That that's how it was. One of the regiments that again is going to be in the lead on the June third attack is the other one I mentioned. This is the Eighth New York Heavy Artillery. And this is that other regiment of paper mm-hmm. callers, the ones from Niagara and Batavia and that area mm-hmm. um, of New York. Like I said a while ago, they were in charge for the most part of guarding Baltimore forts. So just like the 2nd Connecticut, now it's the 8th New York is going to be at this, right at the, the edge of the sword here. They're going to be one of the ones leading it. Commanding the 8th New York Heavy Artillery is Colonel Peter Augustus Porter. Mm-hmm. We talked about him briefly a little while ago. Yep. The Harvard guy we talked about in 1857. He was a poet, wrote a lot of poems. Um, he joined the war initially with 129th New York after Fort Sumter. Very patriotic fellow. And he mm-hmm. wanted to fight. He wanted his men to fight. And that was a big deal for Porter. He eventually gained command of the 8th New York Heavy Artillery, where for the most part, just like I said, they did parades. They guarded the fort. But he was just – he was bouncing off the walls. He yeah. just was. He, want, he wanted to do more. Um, so he, he's going to end up getting – moved out with these these men from yeah. Grant. Now joining eighth the eighth New York, um, they're gonna be in Nelson Miles Brigade, speaking of Spotsylvania, and they're gonna be in Francis Barlow's division. Yep. With the 26th Michigan, fifth New Hampshire, eighty first, hundred and fortieth, and hundred and thirtieth, hundred and eighty third PA. That's who they're gonna be with. As well as the sixty first New York. These are all battle tested veterans. Mm-hmm. Again, you're gonna have these heavy artillery, the eighth New York, these these green fighting men with these heavy 
Iron Brigade-ish type guys. Yeah. Not, of course, the Little Iron Brigade, but yeah. that, that's, that's who they were. So late on June 2nd, Colonel Porter, they're sitting in the rain. He's going to be with a major named James Willett. And they're going to be sitting in a tree near the home of a woman named Margaret Miles Gathright. And they're just sitting there, just hanging out. And Willett, Willett wrote down the moment. He just wrote it down. He says, Colonel Porter was, was vigilant. I don't think he slept at all. We sat down on a log to drink our coffee. He smiled and said some kind words. He got up. He stretched out his hand with sorrow on his face and said, goodbye, Major, and then walked away. Mm-hmm. And that'll prove to be, you know, prophetic. But yeah. June 3rd, 1864, dawn's going to arrive. Yeah. It's going to be a gray, misty morning. Just, Foggy. just a, a typical, typical morning. It's right? very much like what it was about. like, I think, when Barlow was advancing at Spotsylvania. It's the same thing. And there's going to be three Union Corps that they begin to advance through this thick fog. Again, just like at Spotsylvania, they can't see very far in front of them. And the Confederates know they're there. Well, that that's the thing you just mentioned that's important to know is that you know Meade, you know he or he actually ordered the rebel position to be reconnoitered the night before. They Guess what? It. Didn't do it. They didn't do and it. So, and so when when they start moving forward, they literally are marching blind. Mm-hmm. They really are. They know the rebels are out there, but they don't know where they are and how many they are. They get an idea that they're they're entrenched. They don't know how bad they're entrenched, but they're they're blind. Major James Willett again. He writes again. I saw Colonel Porter appear at the top of our works. This is right before they went to go. As the colonel waved his sword, the line advanced into that terrible fire. He yelled, come on, New York, and the men went. Yep. Now, the thing about this, almost immediately, as soon as they left their breastworks, they they got they were fell under fire. And again, these, yep. these were fighting against the against Cabs Wilcox's guys. It, um, yeah, it's it's very so, massive fire, and like what happens, it it causes heavy casualties. The survivors are all pinned down, and it's going to be like this repulse that's happening here is going to be one of the most lopsided casualties since Mary's Heights at Fredericksburg in, in 1862. Right, well, these guys were literally marching into a buzzsaw, is yep. what they were doing after the Battle of Andrew Law, Gettysburg. You know, he he commanded a brigade of Alabamans and in. In Anderson's Corps, and he said that the courage of this assault was the worst he'd ever seen. He said it wasn't war, it was murder. Mm-hmm. That's how, how one-sided this was. 2,000 men under Francis Channing Barlow are going to engage in hand-to-hand combat. You mentioned you hinted at that earlier. Against Wilcox's men on the south part of the battlefield. Yeah. This is going to be the only successful part for the Union because Barlow's men are actually going to capture a couple hundred reps they do. at this part of the battlefield. But they're going to end up getting getting knocked off. They're going to it get repulsed. Becomes, they're going to get pushed back. Yeah, what happens is that the Confederates end up turning. So Barlow's guys get into the entrenchments and they get into the trenches and all that. And what happens is the Confederates end up turning their guns on the trenches that they built. And it becomes just like a death trap for them. And yeah. You know, you have to remember there's survivors pinned down too from the first assault. Um, but the one thing that they manage to do is they do, as you said, they take several several hundred prisoners, but they also do capture four guns as well. So it's so, so that's that's the positive. William C. Oates, you know, from Lower Round Top, he's now commanding the 48th Alabama because mm-hmm. he got screwed out of the 15th Alabama politically. <laughs> he lost the long story, but he's he's now commanding the 48th Alabama. He's going to write about this. 
The fire was terrific for my regiment. I could see dust fall out of men's clothing at three places at once. Because you see about the bullets. That's what he's talking about. And another issue the feds had with, with this whole thing was the command and control. The whole thing was a mess. Like the Rebs at Shiloh, the regiments, as they're going forward, they start to get mixed up and they start to get confused. So it's a big hodgepodge of guys. So you're fighting with your regiment, but but you start moving forward and you didn't have to move that forward because you run to fire immediately. Yep. Suddenly you're not with your guys anymore. Yeah. It's, it's a complete disaster. And it's like, who do you take orders from? And then, you know, Hancock is advancing his different um, division commander. So Barlow's obviously gone. And the next one to go in is, is John Gibbon. And his troops, as you said, it's so disorganized. They get into a swampy area. They can't advance. And there's this heavy fire coming at them. And one of Gibbon's men said, we felt it was murder, not war, or at best, a very, a very serious mistake had been made. So this is coming from the top down. This is from Grant and Meade, not clearly telling them what was going on, what was going to happen. And this was going on up and down the line, way to yeah. the north, the far right of the Union line is Baldy Smith, his 18th Corps. And there's a, there's a really cool story about the flag bearer that takes place around this point. Mm -hmm. So this flag bearer in the 18th Corps under, under Baldy Smith, he's, he's basically leaning his company forward, just, just trying to walk with the flag. The entire company behind him is shot down or runs or they're gone. The flag bearer doesn't know he's literally, literally by himself. There's yeah. nobody else but him. He's walking with the flag towards the Confederate line with the understanding he's got a company behind him he's leading, but he's literally by himself. He's going to be attacking the line of, of uh, Alabamans. They're not attacking. He's marching towards them. The Alabamans, they see he's by himself. So they don't start firing on him. They start yelling to him, mm -hmm. turn around, get back, go back. What are you doing? The kid keeps marching. And finally, the, the guys are yelling, go, go, go. And, and the, the officers are saying, don't, do not shoot that man. Do not shoot him. And finally, he stops and he kind of peers over his shoulder and he has that pucker effect moment. Yeah, he's like, like, oh, oh shit. shit, I'm by myself. And so, but he doesn't run. You know what he does? He stops. He puts the flag on the ground. He salutes the Confederates and he turns and above faces and walks away. And the Alabamans start going crazy and cheering. Yeah. Wow, that is such a good story. Like, and, they think it's, and so he go, he walks away off, and he's not harmed. It's just one of those cool stories that takes place in yeah. the Civil War, and and it just, it just it's just it's out of all the stories, it's it's it has that human element to this. That oh yeah, we, we'll get to here in a little bit. But meanwhile, going back to the other side of the line, Porter's Eighth New York. Yeah, they they're going to get within twenty feet of mm -hmm. the Rebel breastworks at this point. Now again, these are green soldiers, so it's a, a remarkable they were able to get that close. Well, again, it probably goes it, back to just that whole like their attitude towards it is we have something to prove to ourselves to yeah. not just ourselves, but to everybody else, because, you know, we've been ridiculed since we got here. Oh. So that probably factors into how they're fighting as well. Well, the flag bearer and down with the eighth New York heavy artillery, he got the bum stick because he, he, he did not have the luck that the other flag bearer did in Bolly mm -hmm. Smith because the, this specific one got shot down pretty quick. And who picks up the, who picks up the colors is Colonel Porter himself. He picks up the flag. Yep. He's going to take his, his sword in one hand, he's going to grab the flag in the other, and he's going to raise them both and start walking towards the rebel line. It's a suicide mission. I mean, it's, yep. just, it's just is. And uh, Private um, Private William Murphy, one of his men in the 8th New York, he's going to write about what happened to him. He writes, Colonel Porter, at the head of the regiment, 
was shot through the throat. He struggled only to be felled again. He fell to his knees and gasped his last orders to his men. He yelled, on the colors. He was then shot six more times yeah. while he was on his knees and then died. Now, this is right in front of this. They Again, going back to the beginning of this, they loved this guy. Yeah. This guy was – this guy – he was a, he was a ice cold can of IPA for you. That's how Ooh. much that how much they love this guy, right? And seeing them fall, him fall must have been been tragic yeah. for his men. The Eighth New York Heavy Artillery will lose five hundred and five men in minutes. Okay, this is thirty three percent of their numbers, and up and down that Union line, that the results were similar. The survivors, you kind of hinted at a little bit ago. They dropped to the ground, were pinned to the ground. They couldn't move. Yeah. So standing up, because you had sharpshooters, you had regular regular infantry guys, even poking your head up was instant death. So they had to yep. pin down. A lot of the guys used cups or bayonets to dig in yeah, the ground, s- burrow like animals. Yeah, they start digging in. It's, t- it's terrible fighting. And even like, you know, right in with the Sixth Corps, they end up getting pinned down by heavy fire too, and they can't advance. And... Even Emery Upton, who this is the guy that was like, did that charge, you know, Battle of Spotsylvania and all that. Um, he didn't think advancing was a good idea and and deemed it impracticable to yeah, advance. Yeah, I mean, there was, there was, there was, a, there was a, we'll, we'll talk about that going here in a minute, but there's, there's a lot of that. But these men, for the most part, are, are, are pinned down. Now, according to the Ken Burns documentary, they said that the Union Army lost 7,000 men in the first 15 minutes. And that's just not true. They, they, oh, they, that's an exaggeration. They, didn't, yeah. they only they only lost they lost four thousand the entire day, so they didn't lose seven thousand the first fifty minutes. It's just that's that's a misconception and an um, overestimation, but that doesn't doesn't change the fact this is pure carnage yeah. because it was the morning assault on June third of eighteen sixty four was a complete disaster. Mm-hmm. When Lee found out about it. He couldn't believe it. No, because he he lost his fifteen hundred men. He didn't even know. I mean, again, he had no resources. He didn't even know what this happened until afterwards. So you have the, one of the more bloody, one-sided fights in this in this war. Neither generals on the field. They're both back at their headquarters. Yeah. Now, back in the rear, in the Ooh. Savannah, Mary, Ooh. George Meade um, probably doesn't know the severity of the slaughter. He probably doesn't know that the, how bad it is because it happens so quickly. Yeah. And in just 30 minutes, you know, it was it was pretty much it was pretty much fait accompli. He's going to order his generals again to renew the attack. And Winfield Scott Hancock, okay, he you know he's a very opinionated fellow, mm-hmm. Marion. If you know this, he was. He, along with some of his other corps commanders, they just ignored Meade's orders. Yep. they didn't take him seriously. They saw the the absolute hopelessness of any future attack against this defended position. Hancock's going to tell Meade that the, the battle's over, man. It's over, Johnny. Baldy yeah. Smith openly refused the order. He said he it was a wanton waste of life. He's like, I'm not obeying this. Colonel Thomas Barker, he's a commander of the 12th New Hampshire under Griffin Stedman. This is back in, uh, in John Martindale's division up in Baldy Smith up in the 18th. Mm-hmm. He's going to write after the battle. I would not take my regiment on another such charge if Jesus Christ himself ordered it. Gosh. He's like, nope, what ain't doing it. And so that's that's what the reality of this whole thing was. They're saying, nope, 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 nope. Now, once the shooting stops, you know, both the Union men and the Confederates, they basically stayed in position um, 
where they were. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the thing about it, though, is in between the lines, it was no man's land. It was yeah. it was dead and dying blue uniforms everywhere as men digging into the ground. They were just stuck there. So for the rest of the day on June 3rd and into the night, the Union troops are going to have to listen to the moaning of the dead of the dying soldiers um, begging for help and water all night long. They couldn't move because they moved. They were going to get shot. They were stuck. Yeah. One Union soldier wrote, this is truly the valley of the shadow of death. That's that's what they're seeing. And that's what they're experiencing. Yeah, it's terrible. It, it's, you know, in, in Grant, he said that the opinion of the Corps commanders not being sanguine of success in case an assault is ordered, you may direct a suspension of further advance for the present. So he just mm-hmm. issues this order that says no more. You know? And Lee's kind of Lee's kind of stuck too because, like I said earlier, he has no men to counterattack. He lost the ability to seize yeah. the initiative because he doesn't have his men anymore. So uh, all night long on June third, the Feds they're digging in position. They're preparing their trenches for that inevitable Confederate counterattack that's never going to come. So from June fourth, the next morning, till June seventh, the men for the most part remain pinned in their breastworks under that hot Virginia yeah. sun under that 90-degree heat, and the men are hiding from rebel sharpshooters, and anytime they move, there's pot shots being fired. They're yeah. just stuck. They now, lose so many men in those days, too. And, like, you know, the Union artillery are bombarding the Confederates, and the Confederates respond by sending shells over the Union position, and that's why the casualty figures from June 4th to 12th were twice as much as the June 3rd assault, um, even though there's no large-scale attacks because they're just no, I using mean, artillery. Well, and they just sitting there staring at each other. I mean, yeah. during the night stare? of June fifth, yeah, during the night of June fifth, some of the men of the Eighth New York, they were just they were stuck where they were. They've been there since you know since the third. They they were, for the most part, staring at the dead body of their colonel Peter Poor right yeah. in front of them, and they just couldn't stand it. He's sitting there rotting in the fields, and they just couldn't stand it. So they wanted to retrieve his body mm-hmm. and pull it back behind the line. So five of the men are going to volunteer to risk their lives to get the body of their commander, Colonel Porter, back to the Union line. One guy, his name is Sergeant Leroy Williams. He's going to volunteer to crawl out under the cover of darkness and get him. And so, again, you've got sharpshooters shooting at anything that moved, right? Sergeant Williams, what he's going to do, he's going to tie a rope. He's going to get there. He's going to tie a rope around Porter's waist. And then he's going to play dead for a few hours, Oh my god. The Confederates moves. He lays out there next to his commander. And the rebel soldiers are going to move out of the area uh, from where, right where they were. And then once he's gone, the other four guys are going to basically pull the rope and pull Porter back, his dead body back. And they're going to get the they're going to get the body back. For this, Sergeant Leroy Williams is going to be awarded the Medal of Honor mm-hmm. for this. Yeah, I was reading that about one of, him. One of ten men to receive the or, the award of the Battle of Cold Harbor. So again, um, this is the, the amount of bravery from a green, untested battle guy, what, what yeah. these guys did. By June 7th, they're still there. The stench of the dead was overwhelming. Yeah. You just imagine, right? And Grant is going to message Lee at this point. He's been He's reluctant to ask for a formal truce to recover the bodies. Well, that's, well, that's and, what I was, yeah, was going to say. Yeah. Grant says, can we just take a quick time out? Let us get the bodies. And Lee says, nope. He goes, I want a formal truce to do this. And Grant is going to say, the hell, you know, the F you are. 
Yeah. Because if he doesn't want to admit defeat, doesn't because you, you do that, you're admitting you lost. Yeah. So it's not going to happen. Grant is going to finally come around and say, "Oh God, fine." Two so hours cessation of hostilities. He's going to do it, and they're going to call a break. And it's, and then what's going to happen is one of those cool stories that you, you see a lot in the Civil War and these battles like Kennesaw, things like that. They're going to call the truce, and the Union and federal uh, the federal troops and the Confederate troops are going to come out, and they're going to start to hang out with each other. How's your family? How's it going? Where yep. are you from? What regiment you're from? They're going to trade tobacco. They're going to do this and that. Trade DQ cards. The whole deal. <laughs> DQ cards. And, but they're going to they're going to sit down for a couple hours. And they're going to talk about it. And, and it, for that for that short period of time, these combatants are going to be Americans again. And they're just going to talk about. It. They're going to be back to the way it was for a it's short. It's like what happens in a few weeks. You know, at Kennesaw Mountain. A few weeks later, right, the same exactly. thing happens. Yeah. So one George, and he's going to write about this, he's going to say, we met and talked with them as if they were old friends. And that's what it was. A couple hours later, the truth is going to end. Um, all the bodies are going to get recovered, and the men are going to return to their breastworks, and then mm-hmm. they remain there for the next five days. And you mentioned before, they're going to fire, fire back and forth, yep. artillery stuff. There's going to be no battles, but men are they're going to be losing men. This trench warfare you mentioned at the beginning of this, this was the real sea change in the Civil War yeah. that, that really takes place here. And never again will soldiers fight linear formation in the American Civil War. The era of modern war begins really at Cold Harbor. Yeah. So going forward, like you said a while ago, when these when these armies got together, they entrenched, they dug in, and they fought from behind earthworks. So the day the the Dennis Mahan, Jomri, that's all. Yeah, what these guys, yeah. but it's funny, you know, it's what all these guys, what Grant, what Sherman, what Lee, uh, what Beauregard, um, you know, just any general that went to West Point was taught that style of warfare. And some of them, like Beauregard, had a tough time breaking away from that. They, if it wasn't in a textbook, they, they didn't, you know, they're like, how do I do this? But, you know, Lee and Grant are having to, you know, and Sherman too, out in the Western theater, like the warfare's starting to change, you know, and it's really, it happens in Eastern and Western theater, but I think Eastern theater um, is where you see the more of the trenches that we start to see, that we see in World War I. Um, this is where this begins. As you said, it's it's the modern warfare. And Cold Harbor for Grant um, was something that he wrote in his memoirs, I have always regretted that last, that the last assault of Cold Harbor was ever made, so he acknowledges yeah. as well. well. He, he certainly he certainly is. so. Um, finally, on June twelfth, finally, you know, Grant is going to decide it's time to move on again. He'd been the same um, game plan. His mo was to get around Lee's around Lee's mm-hmm. right, get behind him, force him out. He's going to do that again, um, and he's going to finally move out. And this is going to be the end of the Battle of Cold Harbor, and it's going to prove to be Lee's final battlefield victory in the american civil yep. war is what this is going to be and grant is going to famously head to petersburg and he's going to siege for the next 10 months probably wondering what would have happened if he could broke would have broken that line of cold harbor think about the lives that could have been saved and you, you mentioned you mentioned he regretted that yep. he also goes on to say at cold harbor no advantage whatsoever was gained to compensate for the heavy loss we sustained. It's the closest he gets in his memoirs to saying, I got my ass kicked. Yeah. I regret it. And he does. And he, and, and he, he does. One officer, he's going to write about the, the, the July, the June 3rd attack. He says, the decisive action was over in just eight minutes. 
That's how long this guy says it took. Colonel Charles Venable from Grant's staff mm-hmm. wrote of that earlier proclamation that he was going to fight on the line all summer as long as it took. He says that seemed to be sicklied over the pale cast of light. So he's kind of he's kind of chiding a little bit, saying, "Yeah, all summer my ass. We're not going. We're not doing this." Yeah. In the end, the Battle of Cold Harbor is going to cost um, the United States thirteen thousand casualties, just fifty two hundred for the Confederacy, and that loss for Grant meant this war was going to continue for the next 10 months or longer how it plays itself out. And it does get into, as we know, not to spoil the surprise, it does get into a siege. It it does. It goes from there. But the thing about Cold Harbor, which is interesting, too, is like a lot of the big boy battles, Gettysburg, it's got little round top, you know, the mule shoe, Mm -hmm. the cornfield. This one doesn't have any of that. And it, it it just doesn't have that location for the most part. But the thing about it, though, is um, it re- what resonates in the mind of Civil War scholars is really the word Cold Harbor itself is, is the, the thing that resonates the most. Mm-hmm. And those are the ones, that word Cold Harbor, for a lot of these men, are going to be forever etched in their nightmares yeah. and prove that war really is hell. It mm-hmm. really, really is. Oh, yeah. No, that's that's true. It's horrific. As we said, you know, like 1864, the, the war has definitely changed even what it was in 1863. I mean, it's all horrific. All years of it are horrific. But 1864, you're seeing this more intense fighting. The trenches, the digging in, um, just this, you know, you see it Eastern Theater, Western Theater. We saw it with Pickett's Mills where the men were saying, you know, it was the worst fighting they'd ever seen. You know, and here they are, Eastern Theater, Cold Harbor, and they're They've already done Spotsylvania, and I bet they thought, you know, wow, can't get any worse than this. It's like, well, here we are at Cold Harbor again, hand-to-hand combat. That's what Barlow's men are doing again. It just, it just, as you see the beginning of the war, you think about First Manassas, and you start to think about some of these battles and, and how it plays itself through. It's one of the things you can look at and really see how the beginning versus the end are almost completely different wars, where you go from that Napoleonic style right into the modern day warfare and yeah. it, it, the civil war is that bridge and if you study cold harbor you know um it's a little misconception a little bit um because the rebs did lose a lot of guys who the league could not afford you know even um yeah. even losing you know whatever it was five thousand guys that's a lot for yeah. what lee had at the time he had no reserve line going into that battle and so when he does get into Petersburg and he gets sieged, you know, you got you got some of the Fort Stedman, you got a couple of attempts to try to break through it, but he just didn't have the horses. And then when he makes his Appomattox run, you can just see the parts falling off the car as he's driving at yeah. this point. His army. So so what Grant mentioned before that he had Lee whipped, he kind of did, but Lee had one more fight in him. Yeah. And Cold Harbor proved that uh, Grant had a little more work to do. And yeah. a lot of people died for it including a lot of green troops who, you know, for better or for worse, they did prove themselves in the field, um, but they paid a heavy price. Yeah, it came at a cost. came at a cost, for sure. Okay, so I think that's a – I'm going to drop it off at that point. I think it's a good way to drop it. Cold Harbor is a a brutal, brutal battle to study from pure carnage. It just is. So what's coming up for us? So our next episode in a few weeks is going to be – we're finally doing an episode of Oliver Otis Howard. It's only taken us 111 episodes. God. to do that well, but yeah well, we're, well, we're going to be talking about howard after gettysburg um just because you know not a lot of people 
you know, know much about his career after Gettysburg, what he did out in the Western theater, you know, probably touch a little bit on his work with the Freedmen's Bureau and just, uh-huh. um, you know, what else he did with the founding of Howard University and being one of the founders of Lincoln Memorial University in Harrogate, Tennessee. So we're going to do that. Um, we are going to be in Gettysburg for the 160th this year. So on July 1st at 4.30 p.m., come out and join us at Spangler Farm for a private tour with thanks to the Gettysburg Foundation and our friend Mark Blanchard is going to be giving that tour. And then mm-hmm. at 7 o'clock on July the 1st, we're going to be meeting at Fourscore and just having a few drinks, probably talking about just, the Civil just War. But just going back, the Spangler thing at 4.30 with, with Gettysburg Foundation is going to be great. There's no cost to this. Yeah, of free. course, if you want to make a donation of the Gettysburg Foundation, you know, that's yourself, encouraged. Oh, we, yes. we don't take money here at the Old no. Civil War Breakfast Club. No, there. We we're don't. Not so if, you, so if, you're, if you're going to donate, you're going to donate some money, uh, send it to Gettysburg Foundation. They are the, they are the straw that stirs a drink at Gettysburg, and we're looking forward to that. Yeah. And then we'll do have some fun with four score and some other stuff going yeah. and on. So that's going to be a great time. We've got some other stuff going on that weekend, too. We're probably going to do just some pop, like kind of pop-up Facebook Lives from around the battlefield, wherever we are. Um and all that so that'll be good and then once we get back from that i'm sure we will be getting into some more episodes again because we're in battle season so we have battles to talk about so oliver otis howard next i'm going to yep. turn the lights down low oh, and get some has to get some mood music going in here maybe get some romantic in the background some song oh my god, god. i'm going to you down i'm not i'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that's gonna be a right in the top <laughs> Oh, right in the tongue, exactly. <laughs> All right, so we can we can drop up there on that note. But again, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. So yeah, thank um, you, everybody. Stay safe. It's, it's definitely getting warm out <laughs> there. No question about that. We will see hopefully as many of you as possible in Gettysburg. We look forward to hang on with as many people as we possibly can. Come check out the Spangler. Go online, check out the schedule for what's going on. I know um, there's a lot there's of cool lots stuff going, going on, on in Battlefield town. Trust. Uh, there's a there's a thing if, if for people who have small kids. Uh, American Battlefield Trust with Gary Edelman is going to be doing something at the Lee headquarters on the 30th. I think it's 5 o'clock at night, 5.30. Yep. Go check that out. There's a lot of stuff going on. The reenactment's taking place. The Daniel Lady Farm stuff's going on. Our friend MJ is going to be down there with her living history yep. over, at Un- um, over at Unity Park doing her her thing. So if, you, um, if you're in Gettysburg, definitely um, check out as much as you possibly can. Um, it's, it's going to be a great time. There's going to be a lot of people down there. Bring your bug spray, Mary. Bring your tick spray. Yep. Bring your sun spray, and bring a bring your um bring a lot of water and bring your uh, aspirin for those mornings yep. afterwards. Afraid, <laughs> God. After those late yep. nights at the Alliance Mine. So God. all right, yep. everybody. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it. So hopefully, uh, we will talk to you all soon. So, um, Mary, the final words. Uh, any words from you, Finchero? Yeah, thanks for bringing it like you always do, and thanks to all our listeners. And we will see y'all next time. All right, guys. See y'all later. Okay. Bye, guys. Peace out.